I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The applications for space and what you can do out of it are so massive where you can just see a whole new industries emerge and industries which at face value have absolutely nothing to do with space. Surprisingly early in How to Lend Money to Strangers Life, PR companies began to approach me to place guests on the show. I was flattered, and I was delighted. Doors that I would have expected to have to kick down were now being opened from the inside. But not every guest makes sense. One thing that I've always been clear on is that there has to be a lending angle. I'm willing to stretch to find that, and some of my favorite episodes have been stretches, but I have to link it back to lending in one way or another. I'm very strict on this. I've turned away many great guests for this. But today I break that rule. Welcome to How to Lend Money to Astronauts with Brendan LaGrange. Russell and I do make a token effort to at least mention lending, but I'll be honest, it's 1% lending and 99% astronauts. Well, technically, not even that, because we're talking unmanned satellites. Never mind. 54 years ago today, man landed on the moon, so I'm in the mood to make an exception. Russell Shaw, CFO and General Manager Commercial at Equatorial Launch Australia. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Brendan. Pleasure to be on the show and uh, and great to chat to you again. Russell, when you and I were studying, the person that everyone pointed to for inspiration was Mark Shuttleworth. It's not strictly true, but let's just call him South Africa's first tech billionaire. And he went on to become the first South African in space when he caught a lift aboard a Soyuz rocket as a very early space tourist. Now, you and Mark share a number of similarities. You both have a Bachelor of Business Science from UCT. You are both technically not billionaires. And you both have a space connection. Sure, he may be closer to being a billionaire than you, and he actually went into space. But tell me, how did you go from studying accounting in Cape Town to helping to launch rockets from the Australian Northern Territories? It wasn't what I aspired to do, for sure. Um, Like many of us, other than Mark Shuttleworth, deciding he wanted to go into space, it just wasn't really a a consideration for for us at that point in time. So after business science and accounting, I did the three-year articles up with PwC in Johannesburg. And from there, most people took the voyage north uh, to head up to London and, and continue their sort of professional development and career there. I wanted to do something different, so I headed uh, more northeast, I suppose, or, or to the far east is probably more accurate as I, I went off and got a transfer to Tokyo. got a one-way ticket. Had a wonderful two years there, really learning a new language in a, in a completely foreign environment to South Africa and Johannesburg. Great cultural shock. I, I convinced myself that learning uh, US GAP would be very exciting, which it wasn't. And after a couple too many quarters of uh, Solvangs-Oxley reporting, I, as much as I loved Japan and Tokyo, I, I couldn't fathom doing auditing anymore. So I was lucky enough to get a break and took up a job at Macquarie Bank in Australia. So I moved to Sydney and uh, became an equity analyst there, again, in a foreign country and in a completely foreign role, uh, covering the transport and aviation sector. 
And only half the job is research, the other half is marketing and spending time with clients. I really enjoyed covering the airline sector. So when I got the opportunity to to actually go into the airline industry, I, I jumped at that opportunity thinking that, you know, it's pretty easy looking at it from the outside in. Needless to say, it was a lot harder from the inside looking out than the outside looking in. And um, we spent the better part of the next four to five years fighting to stay alive after a, a bruising and senseless one, must say, capacity war with Qantas. So I moved from the financial side of the business into the commercial side, running the network and all the pricing and seating inventory and, and alliance partnerships for the airlines. So pretty about 50% of the sort of core commercial activities. So I really enjoyed that. Um, that came to an end pretty soon after COVID, though. There was a restructure. Private equity took over the business out of administration. I chose to go and try something else. So after a bit of time off, some of the colleagues who I had crossed paths with going through Virgin Australia had joined a... Uh, a startup effectively in the space industry called Equatorial Launch Australia. So I jumped at the opportunity and having worked with nothing but multinationals for some time to go into a, a startup where I was effectively you know, employee number four or five was quite a shock to the system. And we worked pretty hard to get three NASA rockets launched out of Australia in the short space of three to four months last year. So that, that's how I ended up where I am. When you go to ELA.space, you're literally met by a rocket launch and you, you can't help but smile. So tell me in sort of more practical terms now that you, you, you're seeing it from the inside as well. What is the ELA? What are you doing there? And for you know, my audience is all in the financial services. So just for a, a sort of a basic primer on it, how does that whole space industry fit together globally? Getting things into space has historically always been the domain of governments. US and, and Russian governments have been going at it for the better part of 60 or 70 years. Manned spaceflight was obviously the, the high-profile one, but but really in, in more recent years, the game has been to get satellites up into space, which would clearly support communications, um, satellite TV, and, 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 and clearly mobile phone. That's probably the most prevalent one that we use satellites for every single day in GPS. So the access to space has been a real challenge which has been really confined by these extremely large launch vehicles the apollo 5 or the saturn 5 it's a nice lego replica there which you can see behind me <laughs> but the size of that rocket and, and the amount of payload and fuel it, it, it has to get to effectively burn off enough energy to, to lift itself off the ground and then continue that as it gets lighter and the and the, the solid fuel is extinguished it, it gets faster and faster up to you know mach 5 and then up to mach 17 so it's pretty amazing that these things get off the ground yeah. The big change in the industry, Brendan, is in recent years, the size of rockets has actually got smaller. And so the, the cost of that access to space, if you are a satellite company or you are a services company who wants to use satellite services, has come down significantly. You know, if you go back to the 1980s, the space shuttle was effectively the first freighter carrier, if you like, to, to take things into space. And, and the cost of getting just one kilo into space was around 60,000 US dollars back then. So when you think about the size of these enormous satellites, which were going up into, uh, you know, 35,000 kilometers into the sky and, and, and into a geostationary orbit where they effectively cover the same part of the world all day round, those were enormous costs to get those things up. Now what we're seeing is clearly that the world has changed, technology has improved, and, and Elon Musk and SpaceX, to be fair, has been a major catalyst in actually reducing the cost of access to space from that crazy $60,000 a kilo down to something closer to $6,000 per kilo. And that obviously makes the economics of putting up a, a satellite or a satellite constellation and then the services that you can associate with that a lot more accessible. So that, that's been the, a major change. And whilst Elon is going one way in, in, in creating bigger and bigger rockets with uh, Falcon 9 and, and then more recently Starship, what we've seen in the industry is effectively smaller v launch vehicles as well being developed. These are smaller vehicles which can take a payload of 
let's say 150 kilos or, or up to 500 or 1,000 kilos into space at a fairly similar, if not slightly higher, but a, a more similar cost per kilo to, to what Elon Musk has been doing. And so that, again, opens things up for much more precision delivery into space, which means that instead of the satellites going up on a rideshare mission with SpaceX and, and, and waiting three years to orbit the Earth a thousand times and making very small adjustments every single time to get to where they need to be for the coverage that they want, they can start generating revenue much quicker and they're not burning as much fuel and, and therefore have a longer life in space. So we are building a spaceport in the Northern Territory, which is a multi-user commercial spaceport. And our customers, if you like, are effectively those small to medium launch vehicles who are looking to take smaller payloads up into space, which are very bespoke to a particular customer. Why Northern Australia? What difference does that give you to sort of other locations that might be looking to get in the same game? The big benefit is... And again, you only know this when you start working in the industry, is that the Earth, the Earth spins faster around the equator than it does at, at either pole. And so clearly having an equatorial location means that when you're launching a rocket from an equatorial location, the launch vehicle can take advantage of the speed of, of, at which the Earth is spinning to get itself <laughs> up into orbit, which means you can either um, burn less fuel or more realistically, you can, you can take a higher payload for the same sort of category or thrust rating for your rocket. Some of the rockets, for example, that, that launch out of New Zealand or out of North America at a much higher or lower latitude than we are, they might take a, a 240-kilogram payload at their maximum, whereas if they were launching from Equatorial Launches Australia side up in the Northern Territory in Australia, you're closer to 330 kilos. And that makes quite a big difference, clearly, oh, wow. when you're trying to pack as much as you can into a really small satellite with very thin thin margins of safety. So key things you need is, is that the equatorial location is a real benefit. The geopolitical stability that, that Australia brings gives us an advantage over places. You know, there are some spots in, uh, in Brazil, again, a bit of a geopolitical challenge there with, with a site that's run by the Brazilian military. I'm sure they do a great job, but perception-wise, it's uh, more challenging for international customers. And then the other big one, which, which has a long pedigree, is Peru in French Guiana, which is run by the European Space Agency. It is about eight degrees north of the equator, so very similar to us where we're 12 degrees south of the equator. But traditionally, it has been the domain of large European vehicles like Ariane, which is a, a huge rocket and question marks over how, how much uh, launch frequency they can get for smaller vehicles. Whereas our site is ideally located and it has the requisite infrastructure that you need as well, like a port and an airport really close by, but not a lot of people. You don't want a lot of people when you're yeah. launching because clearly if something goes wrong, uh, it can be fairly catastrophic. The fuel has been lit to get the thing up in the, in the sky. If something goes wrong and, and things do go wrong occasionally, uh, it comes back down effectively as a bomb. So th there is a huge regulatory framework that goes over launch. And that's what makes it quite complicated in terms of getting your launch licenses and making sure that you as a facility are well equipped to, to manage the operation of multiple launches. You and I discussed offline before the recording, there isn't actually any lending in here. But obviously, there is money involved and there's funding to get something like this off the ground to, to, to get a project going. Good choice of words. Yeah. <laughs> um, how does that work? Like, so uh, who's putting money in to, to fund this sort of complex and risky project? And how, how, does, uh, how does the economics work so that if hypothetically, we had a lender looking to lend money to astronauts, because I'm still going to use that as the, the episode title. But yeah, how do the economics of, of private space work? The size of the space industry, if you like, is forecast to get to over a trillion dollars by 2040 from a couple of hundred billion at the moment. So it's a pretty high growth area. Outside of the, that traditional government funding and, and grants, which is uh, very 
prevalent until recently in Australia and, and in both Europe and, and the US. It has typically been privately funded through venture capital. Venture capital market for space has been extremely successful, I guess, from a, an, uh, someone who's looking for fundraising's perspective, particularly in, I think, 2019, 20, and 21, there was around $1 to $2 billion of, of fundraising efforts that, that went through the industry each year. That's clearly, like other uh, industries, yeah, yeah. Has, has turned off quite quickly uh, over the last 12 to 18 months. And uh, SPAC vehicles was another one, particularly in the US, where fledgling space companies were effectively acquired by a SPAC and, and, and did a reverse listing. Most of those haven't gone particularly well. And the most probably well-publicized one of that is, is Virgin Orbit, which had a, a failure in one of its launches and, and it has gone into bankruptcy. But there are other companies who are, who are successful. There is a, an absolute plethora of companies who are probably 12 to 18 months away from doing their maiden successful launch. And so we're seeing a, a significant amount of potential participants, particularly at that lower end of the market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. But certainly from, from our perspective, and I think, you know, this will be an emerging trend in the sectors. If you look at certain components of the value chain in space, a lot of them do have infrastructure-like qualities over time. And clearly we've seen in, in other industries, you know, particularly communications infrastructure, airports, roads, those have all proven to be extremely lucrative places for debt providers because you, you have a high predictability of, of revenue, you've got really good asset backing, and, and they're, they're typically assets which are difficult to replicate or compete against. Space and certainly components are of that, I think, are on that road or on that pathway. And we're looking at it the same way for us as a spaceport where, where we'd like to liken ourselves to an airport over time. And that once our operations are more mature and we've got greater reliability from those launch vehicles that are using our spaceports, we'd like to think of ourselves as more of an infrastructure stock where we can use that asset backing to effectively raise more um, cost-effective debt. It echoes a lot of older, more mature industries, and you can certainly see a pathway. I think that, that predictability of the operation is, is, uh, you know, is what needs to still evolve within the industry. SpaceX is doing an amazing job. I mean, you talk about launches every couple of years. I mean, these guys are now launching every couple of days. So they are on track to launch 85 times this year. And <laughs> they do some pretty cool stuff. You know, like they, they've brought down that cost of access because they actually reuse parts of their rocket. So historically, NASA would expend, you know, 99% of its rocket, whereas SpaceX effectively, once the fuel has been extinguished from the first stage of the rocket, they actually steer and navigate that booster and it lands back down on a pad. And he's done this 156 times already. So it's pretty proven technology. And 
SpaceX makes the industry look a lot easier than it is for everybody else who are still trying to figure yeah. out how, just how to get the thing up, never mind to get how to get the booster back. But I think it tells you, and you, as you say, that the industry in certain areas is maturing. And if you've got that predictability and stability of revenues, clearly, then that means that there's far more funding opportunities going forward, particularly from a debt standpoint. What are the trends or activities happening in the space industry going forward that curious onlookers can be uh, looking forward to or keeping an eye on? Yeah, so I mean, there's all these sort of, I guess, um, associated industries. So for example, um, space awareness and space situational awareness is a huge industry where because the world's gone from three or 4,000 satellites just three or four years ago to, to north of 12,000 already, and it'll be north of 100,000 by 2030. And now, now it doesn't help when, when, when the odd Russian dead satellite is blown up as well and that explodes those pieces into 25,000. You know, space is clearly a big place, but, but the fact that they're all orbiting the Earth at different inclinations and at different altitudes means that, you know, you've got to effectively 3D model this. And there are companies that do this that, that look actively at whether there's going to be any collisions. In-orbit refueling uh, is, is a new industry as well. And even companies which are looking at how do you deorbit things, which means sending a, effectively sending something up to take things back down. And the good thing is once they generally come back down, they burn up on re-entry. So, you know, it's not so much of a, a landing issue. It's just about getting it to the point where, where, it, where it stops orbiting and, and, and starts getting burned up by the Earth's atmosphere. But those are just a couple of examples of, of the fledgling industries. You know, when you talk about the applications for satellites, in space, you know, Earth observation is critical. And an Australian company, for example, which has found a way in which by using certain types of scanning, it can actually scan land and effectively find out or discover what the composition of minerals is underneath that land, which wow. can really change the um, the landscape from a, a mining exploration standpoint. You know, instead of having to draw holes every five kilometres or whatever they do, you can see a lot of this from space. And clearly that, that reduces the cost. In Australia, because of the vast land mass that we have here, a lot of farmers actually subscribe to satellite data. And then you can combine AI to look at where there may be issues with crops or with disease. And so instead of spraying their entire, um, you know, multiple acre property, they're actually honing in on a particular area to, to kill bugs. So the applications for space and what you can do out of it are, are massive. And, and these are just a handful of examples where you can just see a whole new industries emerge and, and changes in the way in which people are doing industries which have, which at face value have absolutely nothing to do with space. It all feeds into the, the risk assessment matrix and, and it's just about how lenders, I guess, are, are thinking about that in terms of how their business model or their risk assessment criteria will change and how they can use satellite data combined with AI, I guess, um, to to make a more informed decision and, and, and you know work out that risk return framework. Russell, space flight I think still is the boldest of goals of ambitions and you know very evocative as a as an idea equatorial launch australia started you already had three as you said successful launches in the first couple of months of life so clearly you're a group of people you're a company that is equally bold as you think about yourselves within that kind of future of the space industry what are you focusing on what can people expect to be coming out of australia uh, in the next sort of months or years the application of, of, of what we can do and as these rockets get more powerful and, and the, um, the, the, the fuels get more efficient in terms of how they do it, we can see a, a future for our site where there'll be a lot of launches that actually go up not just to deploy satellites but to take materials onto the moon, for example. And interestingly enough, it's, it's far more efficient for things going into what they call deep space beyond the moon to actually land on the moon first and then capitalise on the, the lack of gravity on the moon to, to, to launch off from the moon again and go somewhere else. 
So we can see uh, a lot of future applications for for what we do with with these more powerful smaller launch vehicles going forwards. And I think it's important that from a from a country perspective, you try and create these or incubate these ideas, and, and it does require some level of government support initially, and then and there's some pretty bold private venture capitalists to come in. And then I think as a time as that starts to mature, then you'll you'll move on to mezzanine funding and, and hopefully some sort of asset backed security over time. So look, I think it's it's pretty exciting. It's it is a long term process. These companies are, are thinking five, six, seven years ahead in terms of. A, just getting their, their launch vehicle into space is sort of the key milestone and then actually building it up and, and operationalizing it to the point where they can be launching every week or every couple of days like SpaceX is able to do. That's sort of the core to success in a lot of our customers' business models. And in turn, it's going to be a success factor for us for them to be able to do that for us to really get the efficiencies of scale. You know, we're a fixed asset business. We have to build a, build everything up and then wait for the capacity to be utilized as, as the launch vehicle frequencies and launch cadence increases. So the fruits of our labor comes towards the end. Uh, we're spending a lot of money at the beginning. When we talk about logistics of an Australian space station and serving an international market of launch companies, you know, is this a similar exercise to what would be happening on the moon that if they, you know, they look around the world, they choose, okay, this is the launch site for us. This is the best returns in terms of yeah, cost per kilogram for us, we're going to launch from Australia. Do they have a rocket sitting you know, in a warehouse somewhere that they have to then fly across to Australia? Do they build it in Australia? How does that work, given that these are huge and complex uh, machines that we're talking about? Yeah, so at the moment, I mean, most of the launch vehicle providers would, would have a local manufacturing facility, um, particularly those in the US um, where they have, you know, technologically savvy population and, and very high-tech industry and equipment. Most of that stuff is built there. There are There's an additional layer of complexity when, when you're exporting some of these products out of the United States because of something called ITAR regulations, which is really there's, there's government restrictions in place around what kind of technology you can export. Particularly when you think about rockets and launch vehicles, if you yeah. put something at the top of a rocket, it, it, it turns into something else. So yeah. you know, the US is understandably very cautious about where that technology gets exported to. And Australia is... Not there yet, but very close to, to effectively getting a um, what's called a technology safeguards agreement, which is what the US requires, almost like a bilateral treaty with certain countries to make sure that its technology can be exported in a safe in a safe manner to, a, I guess, a trusted ally. So I think, you know, you, you will see a lot of decentralization, but as these rockets get bigger and they, they get fatter, if you like, uh, they get harder to ship in a shipping container. And yeah. so you actually do need to assemble and integrate these things on site. So I think that's that's definitely a longer-term plan for us. Again, the, the satellites can be flown in. They, they are the precious cargo. Some of these satellites can cost, you know, north of $200 million per satellite. <laughs> so it's a pretty lucrative insurance market as well, I think. And, and premiums will be going up there as well with some of the more recent challenges. But those satellites can take years years to build, literally. And, and so I think, you know, it's probably a little bit premature to think that those would, would be built in Australia, but they can be flown in at short notice, whilst I think the launch vehicles do need to, to be built on site as they get bigger and bigger. Clearly, the, the risk profile for human spaceflight is so much greater because you're effectively putting, you know, six or nine people on, on top of a bomb yeah. and, and launching it up into the sky. So, yeah, if, as I mentioned earlier, you know, there are strict regulations, even for us with, with launching satellites, which have no people in them and there's no one around, strapping six or nine people in at the top of a rocket brings a whole new level of scrutiny and, um, you know, precision delivery that, that you really need to, to take into account. And, and so the risk to the industry as a whole is if something went wrong, and we've seen this, you know, in the decades gone by with, with Challenger, Space Challenger, the shuttle, 
it can set the industry and and the, those those programs back by by a couple of years, and and rightfully so, to be honest. I mean, the same thing has happened in the airline industry over the decades, where if a plane goes down, you know, people have to figure out what goes wrong, and then they make the industry safer going forwards. And um, so I can see the same thing happening in in, in space, but but the tolerances are, are much lower, even though it is still a pioneering and at the you know the, the frontier of of technological development. The regulations will be very strict. And whilst I think it sounds awesome, and I saw an article the other day about, you know, you can get from Sydney to London in two hours by using these suborbital space rockets. Uh, I'm not sure they're going to be setting up those those uh, launching pads anywhere near a major city, for example. So it kind of defeats the point <laughs> in my mind if I have to fly three hours north to the uh, the edge of the Northern Territory to then get on a, a shuttle, which is going to take me somewhere else. And then I, I need another journey on the other side. So I think there's somewhat more limited applications for that at the moment. It's more joyrides of the rich. Um, like we saw with Mark Shuttleworth many decades ago, that cost will come down, and I think that'll be a you know space tourism will be a, a booming industry as well. But gee, I wouldn't want to be the first guy on that rocket. Let me tell you. Well, yeah, I think that the actual takeoff process is <laughs> I can't really get my head around that ever feeling comfortable. Maybe there are some kids sitting you know, at home dreaming of space where that um, risk makes sense to them, but to me, yeah. Well, the conflict is uh, you know in, in airlines there is a there is a margin of safety built into a plane on, on everything that they do. Whereas in space, because your margins are so thin, and what I mean by that is any padding you put on the space rocket is extra fuel you have to burn to get the thing up in, in, into space in the first time. So the, the, the margins are absolutely razor thin in space. You're, you're talking less than 1% variation. So nothing is, is built any stronger than it needs to be to get yeah. up into space. You don't have that issue when you're boarding a plane. You know, the stuff has so many layers of redundancy built in. So that's the inherent conflict, I think, with human spaceflight. It's obviously an industry that people would have been enamored with the idea of space. And it's always something exciting about launching a rocket. So although we're not really speaking lending today, if anybody listening is interested in Equatorial Launch Australia and private space in general, where, where can they go to learn more? Where, where can they go to see uh, what you're doing out there and uh, follow your story? Yeah, thanks, Brendan. So our website, our website gives uh, a rundown of, of what we've done so far and what our plans are for the future. We're on LinkedIn and, and all the other social media, so that, that's probably the first point of contact. And um, and yes, if you do have interest, please uh, please do feel free to reach out. We are uh, in capital raising at the moment, so uh, we'd be happy to speak with you. Russell, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure catching up in general, but uh, also, yeah, to, to learn what's happening. Yeah, something very different for me, but certainly something I'm going to be keeping an eye on. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, Brendan. Thanks. Uh, nice chatting to you and catching up after so many years. And thank you all for listening. Please do look for and follow the show on your favorite podcast platform and share the updates widely on LinkedIn, where lending nerds are found in our largest concentration. Plus, send me a connection request while you're there. This show is written and recorded by myself, Brendan LaGrange, in Brighton, England, and edited by Fina Charlson of FC Productions. Show music is by I Am Wake, and you can find show notes and written transcripts at www.howtolendmoneytostrangers.show or just www.htlmts.show, and I'll see you again next Thursday. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.